Welcome to our Platt Institute virtual news conference. I'm Adam Weinberg, Communications and Outreach Director here at the Platt Institute. I want to thank you for joining us for our discussion and overview of the new Platt Institute policy brief, Build More Housing, Land Use Reform Opportunities for Nebraska Cities. I'm joined by our very special guest from the Mercatus Center at uh, George Mason University in Arlington, Virginia. That's Emily Hamilton, a senior research fellow at Mercatus, and she's the main author of our policy brief. Emily, thank you for joining us. I, uh, you know, I think a lot of people in Nebraska, one of the reasons we wanted to get involved in this housing discussion is it's on the minds of urban and rural communities, metropolitan and micropolitan communities. I know housing means something to all of us. One of the reasons that I relocated my family to Nebraska really was affordable housing. And it's been an advantage for our state, but even in the time I've lived here, I've noticed the environment for housing is changing. The pricing for housing is changing. And this paper discusses some of the barriers that might exist to creating housing that can one, create affordability and maintain affordability, but also remove some of the barriers to help attract the workforce that we need to grow our state. So would you like to talk about some of the findings in your report? And then um, folks, as, for those of you who are on here, we are gonna have Q&A with Emily. You can ask those questions in the Q&A section. And uh, of course, uh, as we wait for your questions to come in, Emily and I will have some discussion topics as well. So Emily, why don't you take it away? Yeah, thanks so much, Adam, and thanks to everyone who's joining us this morning. As you said, housing affordability is an increasing problem in Nebraska, as it is in, in much of the country. Real house prices are increasing. That means house prices are growing faster than the rate of inflation. And that's particularly true at the bottom end of the market, where the lower cost housing options are rising faster than, than higher cost options, creating a real burden for low-income Nebraska families. Additionally, rents are rising faster than, than prices, again, falling uh, disproportionately on lower-income households. LB-866, which Governor Ricketts signed into law this summer, recognizes that zoning regulations, which are local rules that dictate how much and what type of housing can be built, are a big cause of this problem. Localities across Nebraska have rules that uh, limit how much housing can be built and make it difficult to build lower cost types of, of housing. Some of the primary regulations that drive up housing costs are lot size requirements, which say that each house has to sit on a yard of a certain size. So given that a locality has a certain amount of land where housing can be built, these lot size requirements fix how much housing supply can be accommodated. Additionally, uh, most uh, Nebraska cities limit the largest residential zones that they have to exclusively single family housing development. So that means each house has to, to be detached from the other units around it. And this prevents households from sharing the high cost of land as demand for housing increases and means that only the expensive, most expensive type of housing can be built on much of Nebraska City's residential land. Uh, LB-866 recognizes additionally that one of the, the key contributors to housing affordability can be what's called missing middle housing. Missing middle housing means anything that's in between one of those detached 
single family houses and a large apartment building. And the reason that missing middle housing can really be a sweet spot for affordability is because it allows households to share expensive land with a duplex or townhouses or a fourplex as compared to a detached single family house. But it also has construction costs that are comparable to single family housing rather than larger multifamily housing projects, which can be uh, quite expensive to build and certainly cost more per square foot to build compared to those missing middle typologies. So in my report, I identified some of the, the zoning restrictions that limit missing middle housing in Nebraska cities and opportunities for reform. And, and some of those opportunities are decreasing um, minimum lot size requirements, reforming single family zoning to allow duplexes uh, up to small apartment buildings to be built on uh, residential land. Uh, but once you start looking at what makes missing middle housing feasible to build, it, the, it becomes apparent that getting the details right are really important. So it's not always just a matter of um, moving from single family zoning to duplex zoning, but it also requires localities to look at other potential barriers to actually allowing those duplexes to be built. Things like parking requirements and setback requirements that determine how close a structure can be to its lot line are really important. Um, so, so looking at actual housing market outcomes, what's being permitted, what's happening with house prices, is how local policymakers can identify whether or not they are, are on the right path to allowing missing middle and, and other lower cost typologies to be built at prices that are more affordable to all of, of Nebraska's residents. Well, and if you'd like to take a look at Emily's great report. You can find it now on our website at platinstituteorg slash policy. We're happy to take your questions as long as you may have them. I have some questions to help get our conversation started. I'm looking for yours in the Q&A section, which we'd be happy to answer. Um, one of the questions that I think would really help visualize for people what we're talking about when we discuss missing middle housing is if you could describe some of the housing options that seem to be missing in our housing stock, maybe what, what are some of the reasons for that? I know some people talk more, especially here in Omaha, where they've been talking about ADUs. What are ADUs? What are some of these other options that are there and why are they necessary? Yeah, great question. Um, so if we look at um, the data on what the housing stock looked like back in 1940, um, the missing middle typologies were about a quarter of the total housing stock, but now it's down to about 15%. So what are these, these housing types that are missing? It's um, duplexes, which can look very much like a single family house from the outside, but have two units that are either next to each other or one on top of the other. Uh, triplexes, which is the same thing with three units or fourplexes with four units. Uh, but missing middle also includes townhouses, which are single family houses that touch each other rather than having side yards that separate them. Uh, as well as, as you mentioned, Adam, uh, accessory dwelling units, which is uh, still is considered a single family house, but with an extra, say, backyard cottage 
or basement apartment or other um, attached apartment, like above a garage, for example, that allows a homeowner to rent out part of their space or accommodate a family member. Accessory dwelling units are often the, the lowest hanging fruit of zoning reform politically because so many homeowners can see the benefit. And if they don't want an accessory dwelling unit today, they can see that they might want one uh, down the road to, to provide housing for say an aging family member who uh, wants to stay living with family rather than in, in some other type of um, alternative. Accessory dwelling units uh, can also of course provide an important source of income for, for the homeowner if they, they rent out that space. Uh, and, and sometimes homeowners even want to build an accessory dwelling unit for themselves to live in uh, and rent out their uh, primary residence as a, a larger source of say retirement income. Um, and accessory dwelling units can be built to meet any type of accessibility needs. Uh, so they can, can really provide um, an important source of uh, retirement housing. One of the interesting things about projects like accessory dwelling units, nobody, when I, when I decided to look at the real estate market in Omaha and I saw, okay, I could have this big lot on a house that, you know, is affordable for me, at least it was at the time. Um, nobody said to me, by the way, you could put something in the back of that lot and you could generate income for your family, or you could have a mother-in-law or, or a parent or a loved one uh, or a friend who's able to have some affordable housing on that same patch of property. So putting that option in front of people is really something new. And I'm not really sure we've asked very many people in Nebraska about that possibility and, and how they would recognize it. So it, it is definitely something that we've started to talk about, particularly in Omaha, as they've looked at transit-oriented development around Orbit, which is our new rapid bus transit line. Um, but one of the issues that I think is going to come up with that project is whether what a lot of people in the the housing discussion are talking about is whether they allow by right development or whether there's a complicated review process. And you talked about getting the details right. Do you want to expand on that? Why it's important that, um, of course, just like we have a policy like LB 866, where we have review of, uh, we have uh, the requirement for cities to offer plans, what kind of policies really have to happen so that it's followed up with action that can be carried out by homeowners, by developers, by the community at large? Yeah, since zoning codes were first implemented, they have gotten only more and more complex and longer as time has gone on. So it's not just single family zoning that bans accessory dwelling units that might stand in the way of uh, preventing, might stand in the way of those accessory dwelling units actually getting built. There are all kinds of rules about height limits, uh, how much of a lot can be covered, how close a structure can be to the edges of a lot line, um, how far an accessory dwelling unit must be from the, the primary residence that make these um, accessory dwelling units in particular difficult for homeowners to build. Uh, and homeowners are, of course, not professional developers. They are, um, if they're interested in, in building an accessory dwelling unit, it generally needs something, generally needs to be a, a process that's simple, straightforward, and that provides clear benefits to them. 
Um, oftentimes a, a large development can go through a years long approval process that um, developers have come to expect. And this drives up the cost of, of building all types of new housing. But if we're talking about a homeowner wanting to build a backyard cottage, a review process like that is probably just going to, to turn them off um, and, and lead them to abandon the idea rather than pursuing uh, going through a, a very complicated process to get that unit built. Um, in, in some places that have seen accessory dwelling unit reform that has made them uh, easy to build, we've seen companies popping up that provide prefabricated accessory dwelling units that are um, easy to get approved if, if local rules allow those units to be built. And they're easy and straightforward to install. Homeowners can know exactly what it's going to cost going into the process rather than um, ground up ADU construction, which is, is much more difficult to estimate the cost of. Um, and, and so it, it's just really important to have a clear, simple and quick process in place for accessory dwelling units if local policymakers want to see that um, affordable option for homeowners and renters in their cities. Well, thank you, Emily. And Emily's happy, happy to take your questions in today's program. All you have to do is submit a question in the Q&A section. If for any reason you need to join us as a panelist for recording purposes for audio or video, please let me know. I'd be happy to accommodate that. And of course, all of you will be re receiving a recording once we're done with today's discussion. Emily, you mentioned that accessory dwelling units, they're kind of an easier sell politically, especially with established homeowners particularly because they can, they can fit into the fabric of an existing lot. Sometimes they're within the structure itself that's already there of a single family home. But one of the things you mentioned in your paper is that zoning reform has a hyper-local impact where you have the not in my backyard attitude that can prevent new housing options from being created in communities. And that's one of the great uh, uh, apparent contradictions in this discussion is that there's widespread acknowledgement that more housing and more affordable housing is needed. But then there's also a large segment of the public that doesn't want it near where they live right now. How do you, how do you untangle that? Yeah, uh, so the, the costs of development tend to be felt very locally. People don't want their neighborhood to change, often for understandable reasons. They're concerned about new traffic or more people parking in their neighborhood. Um, or what a, a new development they can see from their window is going to look like. But the benefits of, of new housing development are very widespread. They go to the, the people who want to live in this new housing, the home builders who get to build it, the employers who, who have a workforce um, that has access to housing that fits within their budget. Uh, and it's, it's very hard to see those benefits when a, a new housing development is first proposed. Uh, so in, in hyper-local discussions, the costs of development tend to get um, overweighted relative to those benefits that are, are more widespread and harder to see. Um, and that's why state policymakers have a role to step in as they have done with, with LB866 in Nebraska to um, set some limits on the extent to which localities can make it difficult and more costly 
to add new housing because this really is a, a statewide issue. Um, the, the, the policies that make it difficult and expensive to add new housing in one locality spill over to all of its neighbors uh, because housing markets are regional and, and don't end at uh, a jurisdiction's boundaries. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of zoning? And I, I don't just mean from an economic and policy planning standpoint, but what are the implications in terms of race, in terms of socioeconomic background? What is it that people need to know about how zoning had as an impact about where we stand right now in terms of economic and racial equality? And why is this starting to build a consensus on some of those issues? Certainly. From the beginning of the history of zoning in the United States, uh, it was always about excluding certain types of people from neighborhoods and localities. In the early 1900s, the U.S. Supreme Court determined that uh, land use restrictions that limit where people can live based explicitly on their race uh, are, of course, uh, unconstitutional. Um, so that was a, an early determination in U.S. land use law. But shortly after that decision, proponents of zoning regulations began um, promoting zoning that appears race neutral uh, at first as a tool to exclude non-white residents from neighborhoods and localities. Uh, so, so zoning uh, that raises the cost of housing for everyone um, has um, larger effects on low-income households who uh, historically and today are disproportionate, disproportionately um, individuals of color, particularly African Americans who have, have had it um, have had faced the most um, rules explicitly determined to exclude them from communities and today face some of the, the largest burdens of housing affordability challenges uh, in the US. Um, so certainly land use regulations uh, continue to have uh, disproportionate effects on households of color um, and, and low income households across the country. Can you tell us a little bit about what you learned in terms of housing, housing affordability in Nebraska particularly and, and how that affects people kind of when they're at the margin of whether they can stay in their home? I know that's a big concern for a lot of people coming out of, the, of this terrible recession is whether people have housing that they can continue to afford when they face unemployment or they face economic uncertainty. Yeah, uh, so it will take a little while to get data on exactly how higher unemployment rates and lower wages are affecting housing affordability in Nebraska and across the country. Uh, but prior to the pandemic, uh, about a quarter of low-income households in Nebraska were housing cost burdened, meaning that they were spending 30% uh, or more of their total income on a rent or a mortgage payment. When households are spending uh, more than 30% uh, of their income on housing, that's an indicator, uh, especially for those at the bottom of the income distribution, that they don't have enough money left over to meet their other necessities. Uh, and their, their budgets are unduly crunched by how much they're spending on housing. Uh, and research shows that once um, many uh, residents in communities 
are spending that threshold on housing, um, real social problems start increasing, in particular homelessness, uh, where households um, that, can, that uh, can no longer afford their housing are left without any housing alternative. Uh, so it's really important to um, support housing policies that allow plenty of housing to be built, especially at that lower cost end of the, the housing spectrum to um, allow households of, of all income levels to find options that fit within their budgets. Thanks, Emily. And if you'd like to check out the whole report, it's currently at platinstituteorg policy. I've got a couple other questions. I get the sense that folks are listening attentively, but if you do have questions, you can submit them in the Q&A section. Of course, we will send you a recording. Emily, one of the reasons I was so excited for the Platt Institute to get involved in this issue, first of all, I've been following what you and folks at the Mercatus uh, uh, Center had been doing on market urbanism type issues, and I thought that was very exciting, but it seems that there's a growing consensus between people of different points of view that this is an area for reform that that really um, crosses over uh, what people's normal political inclinations might be. It also seems that it brings opposition, though, that, that uh, crosses over uh, usual political boundaries, too. Can you talk a little bit about each of those pieces there, why this is, uh, why housing reform and zoning reform is starting to become more of a nonpartisan issue on both sides? Certainly. That's one of the things that I like about working on, on housing policy is it's a very nonpartisan issue. Um, and at every level of government, there are people on both sides of the aisle uh, who see the, the need for reform. Uh, on the, the left, um, this is a, a real issue of um, racial and, and income uh, justice for, for people who are at um, the, the lower end of the, the income spectrum and struggling to afford housing in the locality of their choice. Um, and a big cause of, of the housing affordability problem is local government regulations that uh, really limit how much housing can be built and the price point at which new housing can be delivered. Um, so it's, it's um, certainly a, an, an issue that hits um, important points um, across the political spectrum. Can you talk a little bit about um, with the pandemic on, there was a lot of discussion about whether, because we're talking about building housing that typically would be considered more dense. You're talking about uh, attached units on a lot that would typically have a single family residence that is detached. And so a lot of people will say, well, that's not what people are in the market for anymore in the pandemic. Density is dead. People want to retreat away from crowds of people. What is your take on that, especially as we start looking at a post-pandemic environment? That's a great question. And I, I, um, it's something that's certainly difficult to predict. Uh, but at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, when, when spread and cases were centered in New York City and northern New Jersey, a lot of people jumped to the conclusion that it was uh, residential density and uh, things like public transit that were, um, were causing the pandemic to be so severe. Governor Cuomo even, even blamed the severity of the pandemic in New York City on its level of density. Uh, but as it's gone on, it's become clear that um, no level of density makes 
people immune from the pandemic. Um, and it's been very severe in some of the most rural um, states in the country. Um, what we've seen prior to the pandemic is that the returns to living in some of the densest parts of the country uh, were only increasing, even as it was becoming easier for people to work remotely um, and, and live in lower cost places uh, while perhaps working for a firm based in a high cost place. Uh, but we didn't see people um, taking advantage of that remote work as much as people had predicted they would with the rise of tools like email and, and video conferencing. So it's, it's, the pandemic has forced people to embrace some of these tools that they might not have previously, uh, which, which might mean that there's a, a new shift toward remote work and lower density living that was not present uh, prior to the pandemic. But on the other hand, cities have weathered uh, pandemics throughout history, some unfortunately much more severe than what we're dealing with today um, and have um, rebounded fully and um, urbanization has uh, continued despite those, those pandemics um, throughout human history. So will today be different? Uh, I'm inclined to say no, um, but it, it's certainly hard to predict. Well, thank you for that. I want to try to wrap this up on kind of an optimistic note, which is I would like if you could visualize for people, a lot of people are going to ask questions about, well, is missing middle housing for renters? Is it for homeowners? And really, it can be for both. And I would if you could categorize for people some of uh, maybe visualize is the right word uh, for a lot of people say, well, you don't want to throw your money away on rent. You don't want to be uh, tied into a mortgage. Where are there different opportunities for residents of all styles with missing middle housing? Yeah, missing middle um, doesn't indicate that it's for necessarily renters or for buyers. It can be for either. Um, uh, if we're, we're talking about um, something even like a, a fourplex, a lot of new construction fourplexes that are, are being built in um, cities that allow them, like Portland, are actually being built as condos. Um, so they're, they're four small units that are all attached, but each one uh, is, is going to be lived in by an owner-occupant. Uh, of course, they can also be built as uh, rentals. Um, similarly, for, for duplexes and triplexes, um, and even um, a, a detached single-family home with an accessory dwelling unit uh, can be owned by a landlord who, who doesn't um, live in either, if, if local regulations permit, uh, and rents out two as two um, separate units. Um, I uh, tend to think that home ownership is um, overrated by, by U.S. policymakers as a, a key tool toward financial stability. Um, so, so what I focus on in my research is housing affordability, whether a household chooses to, to rent or to own. Um, it's, it's crucial that their housing options fit within their budgets uh, and allow them with enough money left over to meet their other needs and to save and invest for their futures. 
Well, excellent. Thank you for sharing that. I, I really enjoyed working with you on putting this paper together. And of course, folks, you can check it out, Build More Housing, Land Use Reform Opportunities for Nebraska Cities, which of course comes on the uh, back end of the Nebraska legislature passing LB 866, which will require affordable housing action plans from these Nebraska cities that have more than 20,000 residents. So we look forward to your thoughts, questions, both uh, uh, later, if you have a question, you can certainly shoot me an email and we'd be happy to catch that. And also I'll, I'll be sending a forthcoming release with this recording. Feel free to use it in any way that you would like. Uh, we really appreciate you joining us. And Emily, I appreciate you spending the time with us. I, I'm very excited to think with the, all the need there is on the housing issue in Nebraska, this won't be the last time and we'll look forward to doing it again. Thanks so much, Adam. It was great working with you.